In the early years of the Christian church, being a Christian was not something that was looked favorably upon. Um, it was uh, uh, culturally inappropriate. Not only uh, the government, but also Christians' neighbors would persecute them regularly, even though uh, they tried to you know, do, do a lot of good. And because of this, the church had to develop many methods of communicating with each other kind of on the sly. One of the symbols that they use that has even come down till today is the, uh, the Christian fish. Um, we, you can still see them on the backs of people's cars or whatnot. And, and that has a, a story all of its own that's actually really super interesting about why they chose a fish as a symbol for the faith. Don't have time to talk about that today, but one of the other symbols that they use that has, I think, fallen into... Um, you know, it's not used very much anymore, is the symbol of an anchor. And at Christian burials on the coffins, I mean, they didn't have coffins the way that we would think of coffins, but, but um, they, they would often, uh, they would regularly have the symbol of an anchor on uh, the coffin of someone who is a believer in Christ. Um, Christians would meet in catacombs, and I'm not sure if you know what catacombs are, but basically it's un an underground tunnel where they would put dead bodies, and those bodies would be left there to decay until all the soft tissue had decayed away, and it was just bones, and then those bones would be kind of set on into a smaller um, space, and someone new who had recently passed would be put in that spot so that they could decay. And you can imagine just a, a grisly, horrible place. Um, I mean, the smell must have been absolutely incredible. But those were the places that Christians gathered and they gathered there because no one else wanted to go there. Like how, how horrible, how disgusting. And think about how valuable they considered the gathering of believers in order to meet in a place like that. So they met secretly. In these catacombs, they would regularly kind of uh, practice their art on the walls. And there's some of these catacombs that are beautifully decorated. These horrible, horrible places that are beautifully decorated, often with anchors. In fact, in what's probably the most famous catacomb called the Catacomb of Priscilla in Rome, it's adorned with more than 60 anchors in addition to other uh, beautiful art. Now, why this fascination with anchors? Like, where, why would they choose an anchor as a symbol of the faith? Well, uh, there's one reason, uh, really, and it comes out of one verse. Uh, and it's one of the verses that we are going to look at this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, which I hope you do, please open it up with me and join me in reading Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm just going to give you a minute to find Hebrews 6 in your own version of God's Word. We're going to start in verse 13. Read down to verse 20. Um, and you know what? Let's do this. It is easy to kind of tune out. And um, especially when we're online, it's easy to, to sort of half pay attention and whatnot. Would you do me this, this uh, service? Would you do me this favor? Would you stand with me um, wherever you are? Um, would you take uh, stand with me for a minute and doing so in honor to God's word? And let's read together. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. I know, I know it's a little weird, um, and, and uh, I get it, but uh, if you would stand with me, I would appreciate that. Here is the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13, it says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, 
God swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchangeable nature of his purposes very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken hold the, uh, taken hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. There it is. Firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Remember that the book of Hebrews was written originally to a group of Jewish people who had converted to Christianity, but who were considering going back to Judaism. And as Jewish people, they knew their Old Testament very well. And so to understand what the writer of Hebrews is talking about this morning, we need to understand two particular events from the life of Abraham. Okay, now without understanding these two events, um, this passage in Hebrews is going to make little sense to us. Okay. The first thing we need to understand is the covenant God made with Abraham. Now, what's a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between uh, two or more, I guess, uh, parties, um, similar to what's going on with us when we would draw up a contract. Okay. Now, much like us, they also had different types of uh, contracts, different uh, types of covenants, different levels of seriousness that the covenant they were entering into was, uh, depending on how serious the agreement was. And the covenant that God made with Abraham was the most serious kind of covenant. And here's what the parties would do. This was um, moderately, uh, you know, it wasn't commonplace in that time, but it was the t uh, f fairly uh, normal. It wasn't uncommon. Let's say it like that. What they would do is they would dig a shallow trench. I mean, very, very shallow uh, trench in, in the, the, the sand <clears throat> or in the, the ground. And then they would take a number of animals and they would kill the animals. And in fact, the larger animals, they would actually cut them in half. And you can imagine just how um, bloody and gory this was. And they would put either if they were smaller animals, they would put one on each side of this trench after the, they had been killed. Or if it was a larger animal, they would literally cut it in half and put the half on each side of the trench. And the blood would literally flow down into and it would form a trail of blood. <clears throat> And then what these two parties would do is they would actually, one after the other, they would walk the trail of blood. And it's grisly and it's disgusting. But understand what was going on. What was going on was the parties entering into this covenant were saying, if I break my vow, if I break this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. That was the serious nature of the covenant. And the thing that's so interesting is that when God made this covenant with Abraham, only God walked between the animals. Abraham didn't. God walked the trail of blood. And the point that was being made in the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham, is that 
it was only contingent on God. God was going to keep his promises. God was going to be faithful to the covenant, even if Abraham didn't. And the reason why God did this is because he knew that Abraham couldn't be faithful entirely to the covenant. So it was not contingent on Abraham. It was entirely contingent on God. Now, part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, the part that we see mentioned in the the passage here in Hebrews, was that God promised that Abraham would have many descendants, as many as the stars in the sky or the sand on the, the shore. Count them if you can. And that's super interesting because when God made this covenant with Abraham, he and his wife Sarah were up in years, and God promised that they would have all these descendants but they had no heir. They had no offspring, which is hard to have new descendants as numerous as the, the stars in the sky when you don't even have a single offspring. And finally, in their old age, after so many years, and you can imagine uh, doubts maybe even, um, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And in their old age, they finally had a son, the child of promise who they named Isaac. Now, that's the one thing we need to remember. The second part of the story of Abraham that we need to keep in mind is one of the strangest accounts in the entire Bible, I admit. What happened is God told Abraham to take Isaac, his only son, the the child of promise, to take him up on a mountain and there to sacrifice him to the Lord. And this wasn't a figurative sacrifice. This wasn't an allegorical sacrifice. This is Isaac bound on an altar with a knife in the air type of sacrifice. And the amazing thing is that Abraham went along with that. He he took his son and he bound him and he put him on the altar and he took a knife and the knife was in the air. We find out from the scripture that that Abraham did this believing that God would raise him from the dead because he, he trusted God's promise. And we can imagine through tears, knife in the air, ready to plunge, to take the life of his son. And God said, wait. God stayed Abraham's hand. Now, when we hear that story, we're supposed to have all these conflicted feelings, right? Like we're supposed to feel sorry, uh, sorrow and confusion and, and revulsion. Like we're supposed to, there's supposed to be something that rises up in us and says, how could any father do this? We're supposed to wonder how any parent could potentially offer their son, their only child, the child of promise, as a sacrifice. How could someone do that? We're supposed to have those feelings. And then we're supposed to remember, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God stayed Abraham's hand. But when it came to his own son, God didn't stay his own hand. The eternal plan of the triune God was that Jesus, though innocent, would die for your sins and mine so that we, as undeserving and as unrighteous as we are, so that we could be restored to God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died for you so that you could be forgiven? Here's the big idea from the text this morning. God is a promise-keeping God. God made a promise to Abraham that he and Sarah would have offspring. And when they were well past the ability to have offspring on their own, God took Abraham outside 
He had him look at the stars in the sky, the myriad Milky Way, and said, count them if you can. So shall your offspring be. And all those stars, they didn't just represent Jewish people. They also represent those of us who are spiritual descendants of Abraham, not just physical descendants, but the spiritual descendants of Abraham by faith. So if you believe in Jesus, understand one of those stars that Abraham saw, that was for you. Sometimes the night was beautiful And sometimes the sky was so far away Sometimes it seemed to stoop so close You could touch it but your heart was breaking Sometimes the morning came too soon And sometimes the day could be so wide There was so much work left to so much you'd already done, oh God, you are my God, and I will never praise you, oh God, you are my God, and I will never praise you, and I will seek you in the morning, I will learn to walk in your way. Step by step, you'll lead me. I will follow you all of my days. And sometimes I think of Abraham. Oh, one star we saw had been laid for me. He was a stranger in this land. I am that no less than he. And on this road to righteousness Sometimes a clown can be so steep I may falter in my steps Never be on your reach Oh God, you are my God And I will never praise you Oh God, you are my God You'll lead me, I will follow you all of my days, and I will follow you all of my days, I will follow you all of my days, step by step you'll lead me, and I will follow you all of my look at verse 13 back in Hebrews chapter 6. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by something greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Have you ever thought about what we swear by in our culture? It's interesting. 
In a court of law, we might traditionally swear by the Bible or maybe another holy book. But often we will ensure or endorse things with our own signature. In other words, what we're doing is we are swearing by ourselves. We're swearing by ourselves. And I think that's interesting because I think that might belie the fact that we think that there's really nothing above us. There's nothing higher than us. And this is why <laughs> contracts are routinely broken. Why? Because people are liars. Sorry to break it to you. People are liars. God's not a liar. God can't lie any more than you or I could uh, breathe underwater. It's literally against his nature. In the same way that we literally can't breathe underwater, God cannot lie. Romans chapter 3 verse 4 says, Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So, God is a promise-keeping God, and we can trust that he is a promise-keeping God because he can't lie. Let's look at verse 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. God is a promise-keeping God. So there's, uh, the writer says, by two unchangeable things, and by the way, the, the two unchangeable things he's talking about, number one is the irrevocable nature of his promise and of his word, okay? And number two, the oath that he declared publicly. So by these two unchangeable things, we can take hold of the hope that's set before us. It's a topsy-turvy world, man. Like, we get that. I, I, you get that. I, I know you do. And we might be tempted to think that God has taken his hand off the wheel. We might be tempted to think that he's forgotten about his promise. Do you ever feel like that? Are you ever tempted to go back to your old way of life and walk away from the whole Jesus thing? Do you ever feel like the pressures and the weight of the world just too much? You're not the first one to feel like that. But understand, friends, you can hold on to hope because of who God is, not because of anything in yourself. You can hold on to hope because of who God is. Verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's so interesting that uh, the writer of Hebrews has, has come back to this Melchizedek thing so many times. He has hit Melchizedek so many times. He, he can't wait to talk about Melchizedek. Next week, we finally get to talk about Melchizedek. <laughs> so that'll be a lot of fun to sort of feel that finally resolved in the book of Hebrews. But we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. And that was the, the verse that the early Christians, that, that caused them to, to, to have the anchor as a symbol picture of the faith. It's because of this verse right here. Persecuted, run down, mistreated, worn out. We have an anchor for our soul. In a storm-tossed world, we can rest firm and secure. Do, do you feel that, friend? 
Do you know that in Christ you can rest firm and secure in a storm-tossed world? The rest of what the writer says here, uh, it's interesting because he's alluding to uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement, uh, the Jewish high priest would go into the temple. He would go into the, 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 the most sacred place in all of Judaism uh, be, that was separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain uh, once a year just the high priest and he would go in there with the blood of an animal and he would uh, 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 do so in order to turn God's wrath away from the nation because of the sin of the people. Okay, So the high priest once a year would go behind the curtain with the blood of an animal to turn God's wrath away from the nation because of their sin. Now, Jesus, the writer of Hebrews is saying, and in his office of priest, and remember in our catechism over the past uh, month or so, we've been talking about the, the offices or the roles of Jesus, his role of prophet, priest, and king. And in his role of priest, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that he went behind the curtain, figuratively. He went to the holy place, actually tore the curtain in two, and he offered blood for us, not the blood of an animal, but his own blood. Now, why did he do that? We're going to talk about that in a second. But this is why Jesus is the anchor for our soul. His work on the cross saved us from the just, right, proper, true, good wrath of God that we deserve, that I deserve, that you deserve. He saved us from that. And he made us clean. There's this line in... uh, one of the old hymns that I used to sing when I was growing up. It's um, become one of my favorite lines in all of music. I love it. Talking of the sacrifice of Jesus, just like the writer of Hebrews is, is speaking of. And the line goes like this. It says, be of sin, the double cure. So, so, he's, so Jesus is curing us in two ways. So be of sin, the double cure, saved from wrath, and made me pure. That's what Jesus and his sacrifice did for us. He turned aside God's wrath with his own blood and purified us from our sin. Abraham had cause to doubt God's promise because it didn't come to fulfillment right away. But that doesn't mean that God neglected his promise. And even though Abraham had to patiently endure, he had to wait patiently, he did receive what God has promised. Friends, we have a promise-keeping God. If we ever doubt that, we need, look, we need look no further than Jesus because he is the anchor for our soul. Is Jesus the anchor of your soul?